the hardest part might be just finding a place to put this. Yeah, can that be moved? I just, I'll just need to uh, press the key to change it. If this can be moved. Yeah. Actually, that can be unplugged. Can it? Yes. Can yes. That's, here? I'll just plug it into mine. Okay. All right. Thank you for your patience. Uh, I'm a protein chemist, so I wanted to make sure that we had a talk about protein chemistry uh, in this conference. Figured I, um, if I wanted to see it done, I should try to do it myself. And so uh, that's what I want to talk about. Uh, I'm in the field of protein design. And uh, so I just want to start with a brief summary of uh, protein chemistry and uh, move on to a little bit of what other labs have found, what my lab has found, and some of what I think it all means. So if you're going to be a protein chemist, you're going to have to work with proteins as chemicals. Um, actually, they've been doing this for about 100 years. About 100 years ago, the first protein was crystallized. It was urease. And uh, it showed that proteins are chemicals about as well-defined as vitamin C or sucrose. Before that, we didn't know if they had some kind of amorphous structure or if they were, um, they were actually chemicals. But that showed that they were. Now, uh, because these were crystals, we could then apply uh, chemical means, especially x-ray crystallography, to them. Uh, and much of our knowledge of protein structure comes from this technique. You start with your protein. And you need a lot of it, a lot, uh, enough to get a uh, nice, well-ordered crystal. And uh, once you have your crystal, you can show off its pictures like it's a new baby or something like that. But uh, you can irradiate it with x-rays. And the x-rays will diffract through the crystal to produce an ordered pattern. Uh, it's actually quite a beautiful pattern, I think. Uh, this pattern tells you where the atoms are. And it locates them to within about an angstrom or two. Many questions remain once the structure is determined. Proteins have thousands of atoms. And each of these atoms has an XYZ coordinate. Uh, and each of those coordinates may be smeared a bit by local flexibility. So the structural complexity gives proteins a certain beauty, at least to me, and assures that atomic definition is not the end of the story. After all, this tie was designed from the crystal structure of aluminum hydroxide showing the fearful symmetry of just a few crystallized atoms. How much more, at least to me, a protein composed of hundreds of amino acids, each of which is more complex than aluminum hydroxide. Keep in mind these amino acids are arranged in a linear amide-linked polymer and twisted into a globular conformation resembling a ball of yarn. Uh, exactly how they do this is part of their complexity. Proteins are complex, beautiful chemicals. After we have a crystal structure, we know the location of all the atoms in a protein, and this allows us to really start to interrogate the protein as a complex chemical with chemical techniques. Now, I don't use the word complex lightly here. Uh, know how many atoms are in this, and this isn't really even worthy to be called a protein. This is a fragment of a fragment of a protein called villain. has only 36 amino acids. Really, you have to have about 100 to be considered even a small, real protein. Uh, but the good news about villain is that it is small. And so we can use computers to calculate and tabulate the chemical forces acting on each atom in the villain. Perhaps our calculations will suggest that stronger forces will result 
if, like, we replace this carbon over here with a hydroxyl or something like that. So in this manner, we can attempt to redesign the protein for increased stability. And so this is called protein design or protein engineering. It's an act of scientific sub-creation. And I'd put it somewhere between breeding a new type of dog on one hand or synthesizing a small molecule drug on the other hand. Now, protein chemists, uh, we aspire to understand proteins well enough to be able to solve what's called the protein folding problem. And it's very easy for proteins to do, very hard for us to understand, because there's thousands of atoms to keep track of and thousands upon thousands of potential interactions between those atoms. Now, given only the atoms in the amino acids of a protein in a one-dimensional sequence, the challenge is to get past this arrow and to find the atomic coordinates, the a protein's three-dimensional structure, when the protein curls up or folds into its globular conformation. Now, this requires understanding the precise balance of forces and uh, non-covalent forces, both attractive and repulsive, among all atoms in a chaotic aqueous solution. Give you an idea of what this looks like to the computer. Here's a simulation of a protein, of, and this is villain, not quite folding. Uh, so this is that same protein. It's going to eventually get to that structure I showed on the previous slide. But I just want you to see all the degrees of freedom that are present here that, as it searches for the right balance of non-covalent forces. This is a uh, difficult problem. It can take weeks of CPU time to estimate a few milliseconds of protein, uh, folding for a small protein. So there are several projects that are afoot to distribute this computational cost. I want to recommend them if you ever come across them. They use your screensaver time to help fold proteins. <laughs> so that's Rosetta at home or folding at home, if you've seen that. And my personal favorite is there's even one that has turned protein folding into a game for competition among international computer users. And so it's using the, uh, the, the wetware up here as well. So uh, that's Foldit, and that's put out by David Baker's lab. So with all these resources, for limited small protein cases, we can start to approach adequate results for the protein folding problem, but we are far from being able to do away with X-ray crystallographers. To see what a protein looks like, you're still going to have to get your hands dirty, and you're going to need a friend with an X-ray beam, or better yet, a lab of crystallographers. So if at first you don't succeed, you can always reword the question. What about if we decide to simplify the protein folding problem? So instead of determining structure from sequence, we could try to design a sequence to fit a structure. This is the inverse folding problem, and it's not a problem of prediction as much as it's a problem of design. David Baker's laboratory at University of Washington accomplished this for a complex normal-sized protein. This is it over here. Uh, notice that this is definitely bigger than villain. So they, they drew a two-helix, five-strand protein structure. It's probably apocryphal, but I heard that they drew it like on the back of an envelope at one point and just said, let's try to make this. Uh, this had never been seen before in nature, this arrangement of um, two helices and five strands. And they, selected the, uh, they programmed the computers to select amino acids that would fit this backbone, that fold up into this. So imagine this structure flickering with the amino acids at each location until the computer predicts what fits best into those gaps, sort of a three-dimensional puzzle. Now, this is an easier problem than the, the problem I just showed you because the backbone hardly needs to move. You have uh, much fewer degrees of freedom. And instead of letting nature choose the amino acids for us, we can aim for the stars. We can tell the computer to aim for the highest stability possible, stronger than would be necessary for mere survival. So the Baker Lab designed a sequence they called top seven, 
When they made and placed it into solution, top seven folded into the predicted structure. We know this because we got its crystal structure. The crystal structure showed that its atoms were within, within an angstrom or two of the computer's prediction. It was quite a su success. So I think that's a really interesting a protein. As a chemist, I want to look at it, top seven as a chemical, and I want to use chemical thermodynamic tools to ask questions like, how stable is it? How rigid is it? How does it fold? Uh, so the overall Gibbs free energy term, delta G, uh, it's, it's negative in a reaction that produces more products than reactants. So for the folding reaction, we know that uh, we know that those folded protein, since top seven could be crystallized, it must have had a negative free energy of folding. But the question is, how negative? What made it so negative? Delta G can be further broken down into two components, enthalpy and entropy. Enthalpy is related to the heat given off for a reaction. Uh, for the uh, formation of a protein, the formation of strong bonds would be bringing lots of positive charges next to negative charges, forming hydrogen bonds. Those will all contribute to a negative driving enthalpy. And that's pretty intuitive. We can understand that. But entropy is harder to explain. Um, it's not really an increase in disorder. I, I prefer to think about it as an increase in degeneracy. How many identical isoenergetic states are accessible to the system? An increase in available configurations for the system increases entropy. For example, if a protein be becomes more flexible, uh, or if water molecules are released from confinement. Both of those would be an increase in entropy. Now, entropy may be complex and poorly understood, but it is precisely mathematically defined, and it increases with an increase in available microstates. The study of thermodynamics and protein design has led me to two conclusions, which I'm going to talk about with the rest of this. Point one, in the case of enthalpy for protein design, you can design too much of a good thing. Point two, in the case of entropy, that entropy itself can be a good thing in protein design and part of a good creation. So let's talk about enthalpy. In thermodynamic terms, top seven's free energy is very negative because of a large negative enthalpy. Top seven is, in fact, the king of enthalpy. I added that in. Uh, this makes sense because David Baker's design program called Rosetta, it explicitly calculates the strength of bond interactions and therefore enthalpy, but only implicitly allows for uh, any mention of entropy in terms of solvation. Top seven is extremely stable. You can boil it and it won't unfold. And you need to nearly saturate the solution with unfolding chemicals like urea or guanidine to observe loss of structure. So this protein, uh, to make a metaphor, is as strong as Samson. But top seven's unusual stability comes at a cost. Although it folds to a very stable structure, no one designed a folding mechanism for it. They just designed the final state. Top 7's folding pathway, as a consequence, has many stable intermediates in an unnaturally rough folding funnel, energetic landscape it must traverse to reach the folded state. You can imagine it being in the unfolded state up here. To get to the folded state, it has to basically cross the cascades. This funnel is extremely deep compared to a, a sort of normal situation over here uh, because it's so stable. But it's also very rugged. And it's relatively difficult to fold to the correct structure. Some of this likely comes from intermediate, partially folded forms having too much stability. So too much stability in the middle might be a problem. This is a problem that might be related to this. This is an observation that half of top seven is stable enough to persist in solution. So if only the second half of top seven 
is made by accident. That's shown in green over here relative to the normal purple top seven. It folds stably, can be crystallized, can be looked at with NMR, despite being only a fragment of a protein with half of a core. And in fact, once it folds, it homodimerizes in solution. There's the NMR structure of it. Here again, too much stability may, be, uh, may not be a good thing. If these mini proteins start to stick together, it's reminiscent of amyloid plaques in Alzheimer's. Top seven is nearly maximized in enthalpy. Is this too much of a good thing? Less enthalpy and more entropy may be needed for top seven to act natural. Natural proteins may avoid these problems by forming fewer strong internal interactions than top seven. And here's another line of evidence along those lines. Michael Heck's lab finds out what happens when proteins are designed less precisely than top seven. Rosetta's very precise. What happens when you're a little sloppier with your design? These have just a little enthalpy, presumably. Here, a pool of proteins is made with a random amino acids patterned like this, uh, hydrophobic, hydrophilic, with the different colors here. And what they do is they fold up into four helix bundles. You can see the four helices over there. What's really interesting, this is only possible because the DNA code itself allows for it. It's almost like the DNA code is pre-built to allow for this kind of random binary uh, or um, pseudo-binary patterning. Uh, so that suggests to me that Michael Heck may not have been the first creator to use this trick. But no other structural constraints are placed on these proteins other than this pattern that you see. And they're actually less stable than native proteins in direct contrast to top seven, which is much more stable. Amazingly, Hex proteins are artificial. They accomplish the same tasks as natural proteins with no functional design whatsoever. Some of Hex four helix bundles, they'll bind heme, uh, like heme and hemoglobin. And the way you know this is you see them in a cuvette. Um, you do the test. If it turns red, it's binding heme, just like hemoglobin. And you can see that these two proteins are some, some from his pool that will bind heme. This heme can itself bind carbon monoxide. Some of hex proteins will convert oxygen into hydrogen peroxide. This graph shows by how much. If you can see that, um, this line right here is with one of hex proteins present. These lines down here are what happens when you don't have one of those proteins present, but you have all the substrates. Some can catalyze ester hydrolysis, including the paranitrophenyl substrate. Uh, you may have used it. You may have used this yourself if you ever did uh, an undergraduate biochemistry uh, type experiment that turned blue. It's a classic substrate. And so these proteins can do this. And there's a recent report, it's not yet peer reviewed, um, that they can have lipase activity as well. So hex proteins, therefore, they catalyze biologically useful reactions. I find this interesting. One of his default proteins catalyzes peroxidation better than the, the naturally occurring microperoxidase and almost as fast as the widely used reagent horseradish peroxidase, another thing that biochemists um, in here may have used. Hex proteins are nonspecific, and they will operate on many substrates. They'll basically eat anything. Optimizing them for a particular reaction, therefore, may mean excluding undesired substrates, negative design, rather than positive design, designing for desired substrates. It's important that these proteins, they're only moderately stable. The best peroxidases, for example, are structurally less ordered and more dynamic. They're the less ordered members of the group. In fact, moderate stability may be the only prerequisite for low-level enzymatic activity. Now, this might explain why many enzymes are multi-purpose moonlighting enzymes that catalyze secondary reactions on the side. Barely structured proteins 
have incredible creative potential. And this is almost like spontaneous generation, in that useful activity is arising from a random, lifeless collection of amino acid polymers, proteins. A colleague of mine said Hex findings are consistent with his observations that most genomes are replete with peroxidase and esterase activities in particular. If these findings hold true, then we live in a world where genomes are pregnant with possibilities for chemical activity and full of potential fruitfulness waiting to happen, part of a good and continuing creation. Now, my lab's experience in protein subcreation grows out of this context. We use David Baker's computational design pro programs, but we move the focus up. We don't focus on the proteins. Uh, we, pro we do focus on the protein surface rather than the core, with the goal of optimizing um, the surfaces where two proteins meet. So here's a protein up here, and here's another one down here that we focus on. We're interested in redesigning this interface between the orange protein, NKG2D. It's an immunological protein, so they try to give it the worst uh, combination of letters possible, and I think they came pretty close to succeeding. Uh, down here, there's the other protein that it binds to in yellow, MKA. Now, this interface is important to immune function, forms when a natural killer cell detects a cell that is stressed by infection or cancerous mutations. So this could, in looking at it, could have some, some use. Looking at the crystal structures of these proteins, we notice that a section of the yellow protein, isolated MCA protein, when it's by itself, it, it, a section's missing, uh, implying that it's disordered in the crystal structure. But when NKG2D sits down on top of it, it folds up into a helix loop. Uh, we assume that this little chunk this disorderly chunk of amino acids was interfering with the approach of NKG2D and posing an entropic barrier to complex formation, so we decided to get rid of it. To do so, we focused on this region of MCA, just below the interface, and we changed amino acids. The, the colors here changed, but the orientation is the same. We changed amino acids to stable, these eight, to stabilize MCA in its bound conformation. These eight locations looked promising for, um, for improvements. We made 25 different mutants, combining changes in up to five residues. Our strategy was to increase the bond energy and enthalpy of MCA at locations away from NKG2D. And we expected to lower an entropic barrier and accelerate NKG2D association by doing this. So we, we did it, and we tested it. When we measured the thermodynamics of interaction with Fantoff plots constructed from surface plasmon resonance binding sensigrams, and um, the paper goes into a lot more detail than that, we found that the overall stability of NKG2D, the green lines here, the Gibbs free energy of, of interaction, is similar to other protein-protein interactions, like here's protein-protein interactions in general. It's about the same size. And uh, it's also similar to another important immunological reaction, the TCR-MHC interaction. That, what's important about that, that, that's just another type of protein-protein interaction. Now, um, what's interesting to do is to break this down, this green part, into yellow and blue, enthalpy and entropy. And uh, it's already known that TCR-MHC is very much driven by the yellow line, enthalpy bond formation. It's actually hindered by entropy. Uh, but NKT2D-MCA has a much smaller enthalpy of interaction and has a positive entropy that assists binding. The average protein-protein interaction also shows a positive role for entropy. So if enthalpy comes from good bonds, where does this entropy come from? Now, it's important not to forget that these proteins are all immersed in water. The hydrophobic effect could be at work here. That's where water next to a protein is restricted in its orientations. When two proteins come together, the water is squeezed out into bulk solution, 
where it can adopt more configurations, and that would increase system entropy. There may be other entropic freedoms from internal protein fluctuations that are gained upon protein association that we've not yet identified, some interesting papers in that line. In retrospect, knowing that entropy helps drive complex formation, that it's down in this, in this direction, helping it, should have caused us to question our assignment of the disordered region as necessarily being a barrier to association. But we went ahead anyways. When we made our 25 mutants, we were surprised. We measured binding with graphs like this, um, NKT to D concentration versus binding response. The farther up this goes, the better the binding is. This is wild type or normal protein. And so we took the MCA mutants with better design scores. And they bound the same or worse than the unmutated normal uh, protein. So either our program was failing or our minds were failing. You know, our hypothesis wasn't working. Uh, we actually also had some mutants with worse design scores. And I always suggest uh, doing, the, doing the opposite of what you think will help. Um, because what we found out is worse design scores bound significantly better to NKTTD. You see how much far, uh, these lines are farther up, and this is actually a 17-fold increase, which is pretty big for just three mutations. Um, so we immediately asked the question, uh, is the computer program right? Are these actually, are better design scores actually better in structure? And from what we could do with biophysical characterization, they all point in the same direction, that the better design scores had indeed produced more stable MCA proteins, worse design scores had produced less stable proteins. So somehow we had a situation where destabilizing one protein surface resulted in a stabilized protein-protein interaction. How could that happen? Part of the answer might lie in a phenomenon called entropy-enthalpy compensation. When we stabilize MCA, and so this, this, this graph over here shows what happened with entropy and enthalpy. Uh, here's normal wild-type protein. Better design scores here, worse design scores there. The farther down you go, it's stabilized in that particular component. So you see that our better design scores, they were indeed stabilized in entropy. You have down blue lines, but you have this up yellow line that um, almost exactly compensates. In fact, in some cases, it overcompensates. So, uh, when we get, look on the other side, the worst, the, the worst design scores, not every worst design score worked, but half of them did. And those are shown with the asterisks, those five of them that increased in binding significantly. Uh, all of these, with all of the ones that increased binding are on this side of the graph, and, all, and four of the five have a downward yellow bar and an upward uh, blue bar in mirror image of what's going on over here. So, what this looks like is that a moderate increase in disorder improved enthalpy and complex stability. So I would paraphrase this by saying that loosening our MCA protein, we allowed it to bind NKG2D more tightly overall. Now, there are other examples where increasing a protein's conformational accessibility, and presumably its entropy, um, stabilizes its interaction with a binding partner. One from Anthony Kosikoff's lab, uh, he, ex he examined a human growth hormone protein variant that was highly flexible. That's shown in the blue parts here, which were found um, by hydrogen deuterium exchange. This flexible variant with no surface changes bound this receptor more tightly despite its increased entropy, perhaps because of its increased entropy. In another study, two drugs were compared. One drug was twice as big and formed twice as many strong, strong interactions, enthalpic interactions. But the smaller drug shown here Half of it was cut off over here, but a chlorine atom was inserted that was placed strategically 
to uh, create motion in this enzyme loop up here. So by placing this here, it created motion up here. And that allowed that loop to access more configurations, which increased its complex entropy in a model. The smaller entropy-inducing in drug bound just as well as its more enthalpic cousin. Also, um, remember Michael Heck's proteins, they catalyze reactions surprisingly well, despite, and again, perhaps because of, poorly packed protein cores and the resulting configurational freedom. In my lab's case, our original hypothesis was wrong because we don't know how entropy works for a complex molecule like a protein. We thought we were eliminating an entropic barrier when it turns out increasing the entropy was the way to increase stability because of this compensation that you get from entropy. Um, okay. So entropy can be good. Uh, it's consistent and lawful. It results from the laws of thermodynamics. For simple cases like gases, it's predictable. We've manipulated it in our proteins, and once we understand it more, it, we should be able to design, use it to design proteins. RJP Williams wrote, without some disorder, nothing can be alive. Entropy may be associated with corruption and decay currently, but it is more than that. I expect it to persist into the post First Corinthians 13, uh, post First Corinthians 15 new creation world in some form. Imagining a redeemed world without entropy is like imagining a world without friction. After all, we do want to stop ourselves sometimes. Perhaps, like us, entropy will be physically transformed, not eliminated. After all, if this guy, the guy on the left, can be redeemed by a mere human named George Lucas, at least in popular mythology, I think our creator can find a way to redeem something as fundamental as entropy. I've observed fear of entropy firsthand in many chemistry courses. I'll call it stochastophobia. Okay? There's two reasons for that. You really only get to a mathematical description of entropy in physical chemistry. Most students don't get that far. And uh, even once you get to it, you find out that we really don't understand entropy. And here I'm quoting George Whitesides, an eminent chemist. Um, the real trick is understanding omega, all the uh, microstates accessible to a system. And that's a big problem. But it is uh, potentially tractable. We can eventually figure out something about it. Now, since there's another problem. Since entropy depends on statistical numbers and rolls of the dice for individual members of a population, it sounds as if it enthrones chance as the ultimate arbiter of life. But entropy uh, is a majority of the force that causes NKG to D and MCA to stick together. That's a good thing. Uh, someday I hope to use that for some kind of immunotherapy. This entropic driving force is part and parcel of a good creation. It does involve chance on the individual level. Uh, their molecular random walks are indeed unpredictable. However, the stochastic behavior of, of a population of molecules is extremely predictable. Um, the unpredictable is harnessed into a predictable result. I know that my MCA, the redesigned MCA, will always bind 17 times better, uh, even if it, it's driven by randomness. So in my, if my field of protein design acting as sub-creators, if we're overcoming stochastophobia, right, and learning to harness the predictable randomness of entropy, doesn't it also follow that the creator of the universe might have used individual random entropy-driven acts on a genetic level uh, as, part of as an integral part of creation of species? Hex results suggest that moderately structured proteins are waiting with bated breath to do some chemistry for us. It seems a fertile field for creative acts. Entropy does not necessarily <coughs> does not necessarily pose a barrier to an active creator, but it provides an opportunity that is lawful and can be used for good. Uh, 
one final, yeah, one final, well, one final quote. So this is, this is the end of it. What, re what remains indelibly remarkable, therefore, is the delicate blend of openness, constraint, and temporality that clothes the cosmos with trauma. If nature is narrative, we must remark at how fortunate it is that adaptation and design are not comfortably complete. And as a protein designer, uh, I see entropy as being part of that calling and find that even entropy can be good. And I'd like to thank you. Question? Well, Rosetta really, it, it does a linear combination of the kinds of interactions that we know about. And so because enthalpy-driven interactions are studied a lot and um, it's relatively uh, carryoverable, you can carry that over into the complex situation relatively easily, uh, that's part of the reason why enthalpy is easier to design than entropy. Um, and just entropy, knowing all the microstates that are accessible to a complex protein, that's um, it's a really big number. It's having to know a lot, and we're we're just not there yet. The question. It, it seems you have shown that a rubber glove will stay on your hand better than a bowling ball will. It's not surprising. Okay. Uh, theologically, if, if people don't care for the word randomness, uh, you might try substitute yeah randomness and freedom are definitely brought together in in entropy right okay question over here would, would you agree that your work and michael heck's work and, um, makes it seem like it's a lot easier for a protein to fold and for complex structures to form and then maybe our uh, irreducible complexity friends make it sound like sometimes. There is a lot of, uh, it's kind of a weird word to use for it, but there's a lot of promiscuity on the protein level, okay? Um, it's, it's proteins. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of non-specificity and uh, I don't want to make it sound like protein design is just a walk in the park, however. Uh, there are definitely constraints, and there are definitely things that don't work, just like the thing that we tried first. It didn't work. Uh, however, it, it does seem that it's interesting. We think in terms of bonds rather than in configurational freedom, like if we made this rock that would bind things as a protein, it would work better. Top seven's a rock, and it's not perfect. It, it has some significant drawbacks. So I think that flexibility, the parts that are hard to understand, very well could be beneficial. And I think that that has something to say about the the possibility of taking a part from over here and using it over here. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it, and it, they don't even try. David Baker's program does not have a term really for microstates. What they do is they have a few, it, it comes through implicitly, and it's mostly for solvation, like uh, burial of hydrophobic surfaces. Uh, the, the releasing of water, at least we can kind of estimate what will be going on with that. As far as internal motions of the protein, we don't even really have a good feel for exactly how those change upon binding. Like those, um, I, I mentioned that there might be modes that are 
actually caused upon binding that cause it to move around more and can actually increase entropy, even though you're bringing two things together. Um, there's some suggestions like that. And so, um, yeah, Baker's program, it, Baker's program works very well for what it's designed to do, which is the inverse folding problem. Yeah, uh, back here. Uh, what you really need to start from to extend this work is you need to start from a crystal structure, and we need a better understanding of entropy. Um, so the entropy is sort of a whole field question. Uh, but if you do have a crystal structure, you can at least start to ask questions that involve enthalpy and maybe a little entropy. So you can get like three quarters of the way there with Rosetta, I think. So I, I think you can ask some questions. You've got to be very careful about it. It's got to be very structurally defined. So, is there a hand over here? Okay. It's parameterized on the proteins that you get from crystal structures. So, in some senses, it assumes that the proteins adopt the structures that you see throughout the whole protein data bank. And so, that's sort of a summation of different conditions. It doesn't explicitly model water. And it definitely doesn't explicitly model salt. Uh, it, the the solvation term is implicit, and it's sort of it's more field based than individual waters flying around. Do you think there's any theological insight to be gained from the fact that your program what, takes hours, days of CPU time to model what mm. a protein does in milliseconds? Yeah. Well. Um, in some ways, it's, what's hard about it for the computer is that each of the atoms is doing its own computations of what is the most stable configuration for me. And when you have thousands of those, it's really hard and they're moving around really fast. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't want to pose a God of the gaps type thing, you know, <laughs> because if, if protein, I, I think because we're starting to understand the process. But as far as a qualitative protein folding is an amazingly efficient process for what it needs to do. And what it needs to do is not to have the most stability possible, but what it needs to do is fold quickly. And so proteins are really good at that. And so you, kind of the same thing that you, uh, sense that you get when you look at a cheetah run or something like that, when you see a protein fold, um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a sense of, oh, boy, we'll never be able to explain that. But boy, it sure does do it really well. That kind of thing. Okay. Last last question. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, your point about salvation affecting entropy fundamentally is of course correct. Uh, and you referred in the beginning of this discussion to a disorder in a crystal structure perhaps indicating something that's dangerous because the salvation in a crystal yes. is far different from salvation in salvation. Yes, that, that, that's true. And uh, um, as, as a crystal, as an x-ray crystallographer, I do tend to trust, I may trust crystal structures a little bit too much. Uh, that's one of the th reasons why we had to go back and um, check our designs uh, because we had to check the design program, but we also had to check that um, this missing chunk was really missing in solution, you know, and um, that's actually 
really, really hard to do, uh, especially for a protein. This protein is just big enough to make it hard. And so we, we had to, a uh, number of lines of evidence have sort of led us to at least confirm, okay, we're on the right path. And so it, it's, not, it's not the computer, it's us. Yeah. All right, thank you.